Hey church, great to be with you. I uh, hope uh, you are having a great time of fellowship in your living rooms or maybe in the church building. Uh, I just wanted to begin by sharing with you one of the things that I was peer pressured into while I was at high school. Um, I was peer pressured into, um, I cannot believe this, uh, I was peer pressured into playing the flute. Uh, yep, that's what I was, that, that's what happened. True story. Um, now, just want to be clear, there's nothing wrong with the flute. Uh, the flute's a beautiful instrument uh, when it's played well. Um, I've got friends that play it really, really well. It's a beautiful uh, woodwind instrument. But to this day, I kind of find it difficult to process just exactly how um, it all worked out, being peer pressured into learning the flute while I was at an all-boys high school, and particularly because I was set on learning how to play the drums. Um, I was 12 at the time, and, and learning to play the drums um, just made all the sense in the world. It, it looked fun. Um, I was keen to maybe get a drum set at home to play on, um, and there were spots available in the beginner's band at school to learn how to play percussion instruments. Uh, the thing was, though, um, I was traveling back and forth um, to school um, with a couple of friends, and they were also very keen to join uh, the beginner's band. Uh, but for some reason, they, they both wanted to learn to play the flute. And, and every time I tried to, you know, bring up, no, I want to play the drums, no, I want to learn the drums, they would just, they would just mock me, right? They'd say, oh, you'd have to practice on ice cream tubs. Um, it's such an it's such a, uh, uh, unwieldy instrument. It's super inconvenient. You can't bring it anywhere. Um, it's it's um, not an instrument that you can really play by yourself. Um, you need a full band. And, you know, they kind of wore me down eventually. And I ended up buying a flute. I ended up learning with them. And I stuck with it. For all of 18 months. It didn't last very long, and sadly, I, I never ended up learning to play the drums. Um, but there you go. Uh, that's my peer pressure story, learning to play the flute. But peer pressure, uh, I'm sure, as we've experienced, um, doesn't just happen at school, does it? I mean, we all know this. I'm absolutely certain um, that we've all experienced pressures relationally uh, from home, uh, pressure relationally from friends, adult friends, pressure from uh, our studies and the group assignments, pressures from the workplace, from colleagues, pressures from the communities that we're involved with. In a way, it's kind of a part and parcel of being just connected with people, right? I mean, people influence us, we influence others. And for better or worse, people's thoughts, their opinions, their actions, their decisions, they, they will shift our own thoughts, our own opinions, actions, and decisions, even if it's just a little bit, even if it's slight. Our surroundings, in other words, really matter. And so today, as we open God's Word um, at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 to chapter 7, verse 1, uh, the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthian church that it's the same with holiness, that our holiness is impacted also by our surroundings. Um, and so today, as we um, uh, hope to hear from God from this passage, and as he speaks to us, I just wanted to give us a bit of a roadmap of where we're headed. We're going to begin by looking at the idea of being yoked together and uh, a word of caution uh, that we see. And then we're going to answer the question, well, how do we remain rightly yoked? And we're going to look at and answer that question in two parts. Um, so again, we're going to look at Paul's word of caution about being yoked, and then we'll answer the question of how do we remain rightly yoked. From the very beginning of this sermon, though, I just want to acknowledge that a lot of the ideas, a lot of the things that we're going to look at today, um, they're probably not going to be new for many of you listening today. They're just not. Uh, and the temptation, therefore, because it's not new, because it's things that we may have heard before, is the temptation is just to switch off or to disengage. Um, 
Friends, my, my prayer for us today is that um, instead of switching off, that we would be led further, that we would be led deeper into those things that we do already know, into the things that we already have, um, so that the truths of God's Word would plumb, plumb the depths of our hearts, our minds. Uh, it would go deep into our lives. And so would we be receptive to the Spirit's leading and prompting as we gather today? Um, and so I'm just going to pray for those things now. Uh, Heavenly Father, be with us. Uh, be with us today as we open your word. Speak to us. Uh, help us to listen well and ultimately help us to live well for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we're going to begin with our first point, yoked together, a word of caution. Yoked together, a word of caution. Now, our passage today begins with a pretty well-known command, yeah? From verse 14, read with me. Um, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Um, it's a pretty in-your-face type command, isn't it? Uh, Paul isn't exactly messing around when he says something that direct. Um, but we still have to ask the question, well, what exactly does he mean? And is there any room to move in a command, even as direct like this? Uh, to help us to understand the command, uh, we've got to know what some of what Paul's thinking here. Um, the picture that Paul talks about in verse 14 is... Um, he, he uses this farming image of a yoke, a yoke, yeah? Uh, a yoke was like this, uh, a, a double harness that, that joined two animals close together uh, to pull the plow behind them. Uh, the point was that the two animals had more strength together to complete the task. And so the yoke, the harness, joined them so that they could be side by side and help them move in the same direction. It helped them to complete the job uh, quicker and more efficiently. Now, of course, Paul, he's not bringing this image up uh, out of nowhere. Um, he's thinking back to places like Deuteronomy chapter 22 in the Old Testament uh, of commands that didn't allow the yoking together of, a no of an ox um, or a donkey to plow, right? Two different animals were actually forbid forbidden to plow together. And so Paul pulls this picture now into the life of the church, of the Corinthian church, the people of God, and he's saying to them in a similar way, um, do not yoke yourselves with unbelievers. What's he mean by that? He's basically saying, don't, don't put yourself in a position to be pulled in the same direction as unbelievers are. Don't, don't compromise yourself by joining together so closely with those whose goal, they're just so different to yours. And the reason why Paul says a command like this in a place like this is because that's exactly what the church in Corinth were doing. I mean, we don't have all the letters of correspondence between Paul and the church, but in the two letters we do have in the Bible, um, there are a bunch of things um, that the church in Corinth are doing, right? Paul, Paul has critiqued them a whole lot. He's critiqued that, that they've participated, that believers have, have participated in sacrificial meals at pagan temples. They've continued, they've continued in idolatrous practices. Uh, he's spoken against the way that uh, believers in the church are still wrapped up in sexual immorality. He has spoken against uh, their, their, their hopes to adopt and integrate um, some of the ideals of their city into their faith. I mean, one of the themes that have come up over and over again in the last few weeks as we've looked at 2 Corinthians is that if you have a gospel of power, of strength, of eloquence, of superiority, that's actually a deceptive gospel. It actually has nothing to do with the saving gospel of Jesus. And yet the people who are trying to endorse this type of gospel, they're coming from within their very church. And, and yet, instead of rebuking it, these, I, these ideas have, have now captured the church's imagination. They, they want to embrace it. They're embracing these teachers. And by doing that, they're pushing Paul further away. 
which ultimately is pushing God further away because Paul is God's messenger. And so the church at Corinth has yoked with unbelievers really in more ways than one. They're with them relationally, they engage with them, uh, they're engaged with their ideas. And so that is really why Paul is so direct, right? Their very identity as the people of God, that's on the line because they continue to let their identity be, sh- be shaped and be formed from a message uh, that is away from the gospel that they believe. It's away from the power of the gospel that they believe. It's tearing them away from what Paul preached to them and away from God himself. And so I think a question we need to ask is how did that happen for this church? I mean, how on earth did this happen for this church? I mean, this is a church that the Apostle Paul started for crying out loud, right? In terms of choices for a person to lead, um, say, Sweck had another church plant coming up and, and we had to pick somebody to help lead that. The Apostle Paul would be our number one giraffe pick, right? He was with the Corinthian church in the trenches for 18 months, preaching, discipling, ministering, praying, forming them, encouraging them, discipling them, disciplining them. And surely these guys, therefore, humanly speaking, were in the best hands possible to start this church well. And yet, in the verses just immediately before and after our passage today, Paul, he's pretty much begging them. He says in chapter uh, chapter 6, verses 12 to 13, that they are holding their affection from them. And so Paul is saying, open wide your hearts. And and in verse 2 of chapter 7, he says it again. He says to them, make room for us in your hearts. And so how does a church with this great of a beginning, how do they wander so far away? Well, I suspect the shift happens subtly, but it happens surely. The shift happens happens subtly, but it happens surely. It's, It's like if I were to eat nothing but fast food for an entire year. Right? that every meal I had every day of the week for an entire year was fast food. Now, if I were to eat that just for a day, you probably wouldn't notice too much of a difference. But give it a week, give it a month, and you're going to see the changes that will inevitably happen. Right? That the change is slow. The change is subtle. But if I persist with a diet like that, the change is surely going to happen. Right? And if you've seen the documentary Supersize Me, it shows that happens just in 30 days. Right? And so that's probably what happened to the church in Corinth, spiritually. They began well. They probably shot out of a cannon because of Paul and how he started the church there for 18 months. But when he leaves, as they're left kind of on their own to live holy lives without him being there physically, they probably begin to make some compromises. And as they make some compromises, it invites other compromises that are similar and as they're making compromises over and over again, it just becomes habitual. And those habits then entrench and become character. And slowly but surely, their character, their identity changes. Now, just to be clear, Paul's word of caution isn't telling them to avoid everybody who who don't believe, to to just kind of withdraw from everybody who don't believe. Even just in these letters that we've got, uh, of Paul to, uh, writing to the church, Paul tells them um, not to live like they've left the world. Right? Uh, unlike the last few months that we've had, this isn't a call to isolate, isolate themselves from the world. Of course, their lives are meant to be connected with those who, who, who don't follow Jesus. Right? Sharing the good news of Jesus just wouldn't make any sense if we were to do that. See, what's Paul talking about? Paul's caution is only concerned with people or ideas that lead believers to get very close to, to yoke to, 
and contaminate the gospel that they believe and to contaminate the lives that they're supposed to live. Friends, if Paul needs to give this word of caution to the Corinthian church, founded by him, loved by him, the guy who wrote half the New Testament, surely we need to pay just as much, if not more, attention to this word of caution here. And so I want to ask us today, are we yoked to anyone? Are we yoked to anything that undermines our holiness? Are you yoked to anyone or anything that undermines your holiness? I want to spend some time here to think about how we apply this. So I'm going to speak in some detail with two categories, about people and ideas, about people and ideas. Um, Let's begin with people first. For some of you, you, you have people in your life that you are yoked to who tempt and lead you into sin. Uh, this, these people, they're not the colleague who rubs you the wrong way at, uh, on your office floor. They're not the random person cursing you as you're driving on the road. The people I'm talking about here are, are people in your life that you rub shoulders with regularly, that you care about deeply but have the dangerous ability to discourage you from living the life God wants you to live. And they're doing that, right, directly or indirectly. Uh, These are people whose presence in your life, it's actually not constructive towards building character. It's doing the opposite. That they're polluting and, and maybe even deliberately leading you away from any godly example and from God himself. Maybe, maybe that, that person is a, is a close friend of yours. Or maybe even it's somebody you're with romantically at the moment. And, and the way they live or the way they speak or the way they encourage you to think, it's just like they're dangling sin and temptation before you. Maybe they're encouraging aspects of your life that you know you should be rebuked for. Uh, maybe you feel pressured to keep your lips sealed about your faith when you're with them, even though it's core to who you are. If this is you, if, if you are in this situation, you know exactly who that person is for you. And can I be firm, uh, but, but gentle, if that's possible? God is directing you to break your yoke with them, as hard as it is. I just want to spend a moment um, for, 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 for those um, who are thinking about that person for them. Uh, the person that comes to mind is actually their spouse in their marriage. And I want to directly address that just for a couple of reasons. I mean, um, firstly, because as we read this passage, uh, the application that comes most often, um, uh, the only application sometimes, is just about marriage. And I hope you see that this passage is so much more than just thinking about marriage. It's an appropriate thing to think about, but that's not all that is. Um, But secondly, and more importantly, if the person you're yoked to, um, that you should break the yoke from, is your spouse, it is more complicated, right? Because being holy and being faithful if we are married by default means that we remain with our spouse. Unless there's some biblically merited reason to leave, um, like abuse or adultery or abandonment. Remaining in your marriage is exactly what God wants you to do. And God's intention is that in that situation that you would do for your spouse um, what the church is meant to do for the world. And, and, And that is to encourage them towards God, to encourage them towards godliness, by not running, but, but by remaining. And, and so, what, so what does it look like to break the yoke if it is your spouse that is leading you away from God? Again, it's a very difficult thing. Uh, 
But perhaps one suggestion um, is to do it, uh, to, one suggestion to break that yoke, rather, is, is to grow in willingness to, to speak about these things, even if they're yet to be believers. Right? A mark of any good marriage, but believers or not, is that spouses can speak about their joys, their hurts, their fears, um, and really anything that is on their heart, and especially the case if those feelings are caused by the other person. Right? To grow in familiarity with speaking about your desire to, to be holy, um, and to do that in gentle, non-offensive, non-preachy, loving language might be a fantastic way, actually, that your desire to be holy becomes a public thing and, and, and doesn't just kind of remain a private thing that's in your mind. So maybe that's a suggestion for you. But I want to recognize that in everything that I've said up till now about, about people, um, they're difficult things to think through. They're, they're difficult things to commit to. And so please feel free to speak um, to any of the pastors more. I would love to speak further. I would love to pray with you. And so for some of us here, there are people that we are yoked to that undermine our holiness. Um, we're going to now move to ideas because um, I think while there are certainly, uh, for some of us, people that impact our holiness, um, I suspect ideas impact everybody, all of us. And so I want to ask, are we yoked to any ideas like the Corinthians were that we hold to that undermine our holiness? Are we yoked to any ideas um, that undermine the gospel? Because like I said, I think we do, but just in different ways. Right? And, and to demonstrate that, let me give you um, portraits of two fictional people. Um, I've adapted this slightly from um, something that I read, but believers, uh, they're both believers, uh, who in different ways hold to ideas that look like the world around them. Um, the first person I want to introduce you to is Korea Carlene. Yeah, um, Korea Carlene. If, if Carlene were to describe her life, um, she would describe it um, in terms of economic progress. Right? She would think about the weeks and the months and the years that pass in her life, um, either as setbacks or steps forward. Her career is the primary way she sees herself, and so she sees any event, any opportunity, any challenge. Uh, from the context of her job, uh, uh, maybe in reference to her wealth status and, and the power that she and the influence that she hopes to achieve. And although she is a believer uh, who, who listens to podcasts and sermons on the way to and from work, who re does read the Bible from time to time, goes to church a few times a month, who's charitable and provides for uh, her friends when they're in need, really the, the narrative that drives Carlene's life is her career. When she wakes up in the morning, her mind is thinking subconsciously, what role will today play in my success story? What wins will I achieve this week? How, how will I know that I've made progress in the next month? Her life is all about progress. Her life is all about success. So that's Korea, um, Carleen. Uh, let me now introduce you to Entertainment Eddie. He's our second uh, fictional portrait. If Eddie were to describe his life honestly... Um, what gives his life shape and direction is his passion to enjoy himself, to relax. He is devoted to leisure. He is devoted to entertainment. Um, and if he were to look at uh, moments of his life story, he would tell you about you know, the, maybe the games that he played as a kid, uh, the shows and the movies that he watched as he grew up, uh, maybe the shows and the movies that he watches now as an adult. Um, maybe, maybe he talks a lot about the holidays and the vacations and the travels that he's been on and he's counting down to the ones that are coming up. Um, 
uh, Eddie's not lazy though, right? In, in fact, Eddie um, regularly schedules time to make sure that he uh, watches the things that he wants to watch that are coming out. He works hard at his job uh, so that he can maximize uh, the choice that he has to do what he really wants to do. Now, Eddie, of course, he also attends church. He's a part of a church. Uh, he's on his Bible app most evenings and he scrolls to a passage and prays before he goes to bed. Um, he tries to follow what is good, what is a good thing to do most of the time. Um, but the dominant narrative of his life is really in how he pushes through his obligations so that he can dedicate the time when he's not at work, the afternoons, the evenings, the weekends, his holiday time, to this idea of leisure and entertainment. Right? Eddie would um, define his setbacks and his steps forward in the way that he would use his money and time to, to pursue different types of entertainment. Now, there are two characters, there are two portraits. Um, there's many more I could give, um, but for the sake of time, I'm going to stop at two. But really, the, the problem with both these portraits, it's, it's not that pursuing career isn't worth doing, it is. It's not that pursuing leisure and entertainment is unholy, because it's actually good for us. But Scripture teaches that our careers are, are lesser good than God. We learn that leisure and entertainment, they're healthy for a well-rounded life, but not, to, not for it to grow out of proportion and to extend into every part of life. That's, that's not its place. Right? These are ideas, these are some of the ideas anyway, career, uh, leisure, entertainment, that capture so much of our unbelieving neighbor's pursuits. Right? For a lot of people, these things, particularly in the West, these things are the primary idea that captures their life. Right? And, and the other parts of their life, they just kind of fall into that. These are, are some of the ideas that our culture accepts and it promotes. It's a mainstream thing, which really makes it all the harder to break from because it's just um, everybody does it, right? Friends, can I, can I be strong today and ask you, what ideas have you yoked yourself to that undermines your holiness? What ideas have you yoked to that undermine the gospel, which is ultimately what is meant to give us shape and significance as believers? Um, I think for perhaps a lot of us, it's difficult to identify because ideas are just so much harder to see uh, than, than, and see that we're yoked to than being yoked to people. Um, and if that's you, I've just got a, a couple of questions that might be helpful to begin to find some answers. Right? Here are some of these questions. Um, where does your mind rush to in my, in, during moments of quiet? Here's another question you can answer. When you look at your life, what narrative begins to take shape when you consider what are steps forward and what are setbacks? Another question you could answer is, what do you value most in your life? And what is the difference between what you say you value and, and the way you spend your time and your money? And as you begin to answer these questions, you might get some answers of what is actually pulling you away from holiness. What is the point of all this? Right? The, the point of all this is to be able to identify those ideas that captivate us so that we are in a place where we can begin to build and we can begin to commit to habits to help us break from those ideas. Right? There's no silver bullet, unfortunately. We've got to form habits. Uh, those things are difficult to do, but it's only if we make them habits that we have a chance of breaking the yoke from these unbe unbelieving ideas. Now, um, that's really conceptual. So what does that look like to come up with these habits? Well, it's going to be different from person to person. It's going to be different situation to situation. 
And so just to give us some ideas, let's go back to our two fictional portraits, right? Korea Carleen, what habits could she form to be able to begin to fight and break from those ideas? She might, for example, practice the Sabbath every week and rest herself from all thinking about Korea by staying completely offline, away from LinkedIn or whatever, and focused on worshipping God. Perhaps before she makes a five-year plan about how she might upskill or career development paths, she might first speak to two sisters from her church and think about ways that she could grow in her character and generosity in both her time and her money. Perhaps those are some things that she could do, those habits she could form. Well, what about Entertainment Eddie? What, could, what are some things he could do? Well, Eddie might try and break the yoke of loving leisure uh, by maybe um, purchasing a journal that he writes in every day. Um, because he, he's likely to escape serious reflection uh, because he loves leisure, he wants to stop that by buying this journal. So he might write events of the day in it. He might write when he notices that he's tempted to escape. He, he might write down things that he can pray for others as he speaks to his colleagues and friends. Um, maybe Eddie could commit to taking one less overseas holiday every three years and give the equivalent amount of that to the work of the gospel overseas. Now, these are obviously just suggestions. They may not be right. They may not be good for you. But the point is that we begin to be creative. We begin to imagine what breaking the yoke might look like on those ideas that compel us from an unbelieving world, those ideas that are compelling us and, and drawing us away from God. D.L. Moody, um, a famous American evangelist, once compared the church in the world to a ship out in the sea. And, and he, 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 said, um, he once said that the place for the ship is in the sea, but God help the ship if the sea gets into it. Right? If we are yoked, in other words, to an unbelieving world, we are being shaped, we are molded subtly yet surely by that influence, by those surroundings. And we could, we could, we could be so uh, molded to the point of sinking. And Paul's word of caution and ultimately God's word of caution to us is that we've got to break that yoke. Yeah, we've got to break that yoke. So that's our first point. Let's now move on to our second point. Uh, we'll look at the question, how do we remain rightly yoked? Yeah, how do we remain rightly yoked? If, if being yoked to the unbelieving world is as dangerous as God has made it to be, and breaking it is as important as is written here, well, how do we remain rightly yoked? Because the dan danger of the things that we've talked about just in the first point is they just fall into the too hard basket, right? right? Um, we begin to try some things, to try to break the yoke, um, but because we're, we're trying to tear ourselves from things that naturally are so compelling for us, naturally that are so um, captivating to us, we just kind of, we, we can just easily give up or, or our efforts don't last very long and we just return to it. So, so how does the Apostle Paul encourage the believers to remain rightly yoked? That's an important question, right? What, what fuels our desire to engage and cling to things that help, not hurt our holiness? Uh, Paul in the passage points to at least two things. I believe. He, he tells the Corinthians to remember their holiness, sorry, to remember their otherness and to remember their place in God's story. To remember their otherness and to remember their place in God's story. Let's begin with remembering their otherness or remembering our otherness. Um, after Paul gives that command in the first part of verse 14, um, he moves on to a series of questions, right? Um, let's read those questions together. There are five of them in total uh, from verse 14. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Belial is just a reference to Satan in Jewish literature. 
Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? You get what Paul's trying to do? What's the implied answer to each of these questions? The answer is that they've got nothing in common, right? They have nothing to do with each other. There is no harmony. They're utterly different. Paul's point is that um, to God, a believer is like chalk and cheese to an unbeliever. To God, we are completely other to the unbelieving world. Why? Well, he he concludes uh, at the end of verse 16 by saying, for we are the temple of the living God. For we are the temple of the living God. As believers, as people who trust Jesus to have come, lived, died, and risen for us so that we might have a right relationship with God again, what happens as we trust that and accept that is that we become no longer wicked. God sees us now as righteous, right? Uh, we are no longer in darkness. God, God, God now attaches us to the light of the world. We don't follow Satan, the prince of this world, but Jesus Christ, the savior, savior of the world. We're not, we're, we're not unbelievers, we're believers by faith. And so, kind of like the temple that was once in the middle of the city of Jerusalem, that was different and other to everything that was around it, we are like that temple. We are now temples of the living God. That place from where the very fullness of God dwells and he's working what he wants to achieve in the world, that's now us. Because from his perspective, we are on completely different planets to unbelievers. Now, we might agree, agree with that in principle, but the problem is um, we don't often see things like that, do we? We, we tend not to see things like that. In, in fact, it's far more likely that we see just how similar we are to the world around us rather than seeing how fundamentally different we are, like how God sees us. That, 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 com- that language kind of comes up a lot when um, talking about the issue of dating, particularly dating somebody who, who, who isn't a believer. And um, bef- I don't want to um, go into that topic without first saying that I know it's a sensitive topic for some people listening today um, for a bunch of different reasons. Um, maybe you feel like you're running out of options or um, maybe it's harder to meet new people now um, maybe feel like you're getting a bit older, I don't know. But uh, Paul's point here is that it's so fundamentally important to remember how different you are. Um, Just from my conversations with people that are struggling with um, wanting to date somebody who's not a believer, they kind of say or think stuff like, surely it would be better to, you know, just date this person I know rather than to remain single. Um, They they might think of somebody they know, like a friend's cousin, um, a distant friend maybe, who eventually became a believer after getting married or something, or, or, or at least started going to church. Um, they might speak about you know, how, how alike they are, you know, that, that they like the same things, they share the same interests, they enjoy the same food, they have similar professions, um, they have personalities that click, they get along really naturally, and so they go, man, this could really work. Uh, and more can be said to kind of respond to that, but just looking at this passage alone, Paul makes the point to remind uh, you, if you are particularly in that situation, that you are completely other. We are completely other. In God's eyes, you could not be more different from this person. You are light compared to darkness. You are Christ compared to Satan. You are God compared to idols. And so whenever we are tempted to go down a path in, in anything that really might lead us to sin, sometimes we just have to put God's specs on. Sometimes we need to see things again from God's perspective to remind ourselves to see that we are actually really different because friends we are different and because we are different 
Paul's point is that we ought to live different. Friends, if we are holy in status, which is what we are, that's why we're the temple of the living God, we're holy in status, then we need to keep working at becoming holy in life and character too. Would you remember your otherness? But that's not the full story that Paul is drawing the church to. Southwest noticed that he isn't saying here that they individually are temples of the living God, right? He does say that in other parts of the Bible, uh, in his other letters, but that's not what he's saying here. What does he say here? Take another look. What does he say? He says, he says in verse 16, for we, for we are the temple of the living God. We. As in the Corinthian church as a whole, collectively, they're the temple of the living God. And therefore, we at Southwest, all of us together, we are the temple of the living God. Why is that distinction important? You see, friends, Paul is making it clear that when we choose holiness, when we remember to see our otherness, when we decide to break yokes with the unbelieving world, that actually isn't the, the complete responsibility of that one person. That doesn't completely fall on you. Now, don't get me wrong. Um, that one person isn't empty of responsibility. Actually, far from it. Ultimately, it is their responsibility before God. But the point Paul is raising is that it's not completely theirs either. What do I mean? Well, it's a bit like, uh, I think, raising kids, right? Raising kids, whose responsibility ultimately is it to raise kids? Well, it's the parents, right? Now, that doesn't mean, though, that just because ultimately it's their responsibility, that it's entirely their responsibility, right? There's a role for extended family. There's a role for the church to play, for friends, for schools, for the government. They've all got an important role to play in helping parents raise their kids. And so it's not, while it's ultimately on the person, it's not completely on the person. And so coming back uh, to the example of dating that we just spoke about, for the people in our church who are, who are choosing holiness in their singleness but by not yoking to an unbeliever, either by dating or by marriage, they've got to hear more than just a reminder in a sermon, right? Even though that's important. It's just as important that they have support, that they, that they are prayed for, that they have encouragement from the wider church to help them keep saying yes to holiness and no to the temptations of an unbelieving world. Because while it's ultimately their responsibility before God, it's not entirely their responsibility. It's a shared responsibility with the whole church. Why? It's because we, we are the temple of the living God. Now, obviously, this doesn't just apply to dating. This applies to any pursuit of godliness and holiness. It applies to anything that we are fighting, that we are fleeing, that we are breaking from. Church, it, really, this is what it means to be rightly yoked, isn't it? Right? Just, as we are, just as we want to break the yoke of the unbelieving world because it is tearing us away from God and, and His desires for us, we should, um, in an opposite way, be, be yoking close, more closely with with, 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 the, with the people, the ideas, and the communities that, that encourage us, that shape us, that grow our convictions to live as we should, as the different people that God already sees us as. In other words, we should be yoking closely, more closely with the church. And that's why it's so important, friends, to see SWEC as much more than just a place or a building that you simply attend or bring your family to. I hope you agree. And so how do we remain rightly yoked? Well, Paul urges us, and urges the Corinthians to remember their otherness, to remember our otherness, and to remember that we collectively are the temple of God. But Paul doesn't end there. He doesn't stop there. He, 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 he also then encourages them 
not just to remember their otherness, but to remember their place in God's story. Yeah? To remember their place in God's story. Um, let's pick it up from the end of verse 16, because Paul's kind of moves into almost like a sermon in some ways. Um, he quotes a bunch of Old Testament references of things that God has directly said to Israel, the nation, and, and points uh, at different points in their history, and he does it one after the other um, without pausing or providing any, any commentary, and he does that to the end of the chapter. Um, he begins with two promises in verse 16. He then moves to two commands um, in verse 17. And then he finishes with another two promises at the end of verse 17 and into verse 18. Um, you've got the verses in the footnotes, probably in the Bibles that you're reading. So I'll leave it to you um, if you want to explore more of that. Um, more importantly, though, is at this particular point, is what is, Paul, what is Paul wanting his readers and us to understand as he's weaving and as he's using and, and coming to these different Old Testament references. I want to say and suggest that I think it's for at least three related reasons that he, he, he goes through these different promises and different commands. Uh, these will be brief. And so um, uh, please follow along. But the first reason um, is he wants to show us that it has always been God's intention to be present among his people. It's always been God's intention to be present among his people. Right? Paul is trying to say that what he's saying in this passage, it's not a new thing. It's been that way from really the very beginning of God's people, right back to the Garden of Eden, uh, to God's people in Israel, to God's people when they're in exile, um, and to God's people now. And, and the presence that God wants and hopes to have with his people, it's not like you know, a big brother type of presence, right, where he's just watching, waiting for you to stumble and fail. God's hope and God's intention has been to live with his people, to walk among them, to, to, to be a father to his sons and daughters. This is an intimate re relational presence. That's always been God's intention. This is not a new thing. The other reason why he threads these verses together is, secondly, to show us that the command to separate from unbelievers, that's also not a new thing. That's not a new thing at all. Right? God has always wanted his people to separate, to be different. He's wanted them not to be involved with unclean things. He has wanted them to separate from the world. And, and this is really, really key, so please follow along. The, the command that, that, that Paul references, that has always been connected with being God's people. What do I mean by that? It's, it's never been the case that God's people need to obey commands in order to become the people of God. Does that make sense? It, it's not like it's, it's some precondition that God holds over Israel and says, you need to do this in order to be my people. No, he commands it because they already are his people. And Israel is to obey these commands because they are already the people of God. And we are to obey those commands because we are already the people of God. This isn't a new thing either. And the third reason Paul gives is to show us that we are connected to a bigger story. Yeah, To show us that we are connected to a bigger story. In the first verse of chapter 7, Paul begins with, Therefore, since we have these promises. You hear that? These promises aren't just for the people who first heard them, those Israelites. These promises are now for the Corinthian church, which means these promises are now also for us. What were once promises for an for a, for a ethnic nation have now become promises for every believer. But for, for us in, in the new covenant, this side of the cross, they're not just promises in, this, in, in the same sense as, as, as we see here. Because... Um, these were once future promises in the Old Testament. For us, they've begun to be present realities, right? We, we've begun to see these promises fulfilled. We've got the Spirit dwelling in us. 
And so God lives within us. In a sense, he's walking with us, coming back to verse 16. Because of Jesus, uh, we are now adopting and call God Father as Jesus does. And, and we have sons and daughters of the God of the universe. And that's the promise in verse 18. Right? Now, obviously, obviously, um, there's still more to come. There is more to come, right? One day where we will live with God face to face. And he will walk physically among us. One day, things that are currently unseen, like our adoption as God's children, that's going to become seen. And we're going to experience that in a, in a totally different way. But the point Paul is making is this. We are connected to a bigger story. If we are deciding to break yokes and to, to remain yoked well, and all we've got are going, man, these are tough sacrifices that I've got to make tomorrow, or the tough sacrifices that I've got to make this week. Our willingness to do those things, that's not going to get very far. But, but if we're remembering daily, if we're praying, if we're recalling and seeing the promises that God makes, that, that we are on a trajectory that God began right at the foundation of the world, that, that we share with the people of God throughout history and that we are on a course to see that living obedient lives as the people of God is where we're ultimately also headed. We've got a far deeper, far more profound reason to do what every child of God is urged to do. I hope you see that. We are part and connected to a greater story. One of the things that um, has really changed for the better, I think, since we've kind of been lockdown uh, for a good while um, and uh, as we've kind of been observing the measures that our health authorities have recommended is that I've just noticed um, that we are much bigger on um, being clean like we're much bigger on sanitizing we're much bigger on decontaminating and de um, and all those sorts of things uh, like just for me by myself I'm, I'm now washing my hand with soap uh, way longer than I used to uh, for the times I've had to go to the shops and use the bathrooms I haven't seen anybody leave without washing their hands anymore which I used to see a whole lot of right and so one thing that's really kind of uh, like a like a very minor benefit is that our levels of cleanliness have really stepped up in this time as I close now um, it's it's great that we are so much better on personal and communal hygiene I want to ask um, how about our spiritual hygiene it might be a bit of a funny question how is our spiritual hygiene? Because that's pretty much what Paul says in chapter 7, verse 1, right? What does Paul say? He says, Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. You hear that language? Purify ourselves, cleanse ourselves, decontaminate ourselves, sanitize ourselves almost, right? From things that are body and spirit, from things that are from an unbelieving world that pulls us away from God. I pray that we care more about our spiritual hygiene in a way, right? Out of reverence for God, out of reverence for Him, would we ask His help to identify the people and ideas that we are yoked to that are undermining our holiness? Out of reverence for God, would we ask His help to creatively come up with ideas and habits to combat and fight and break these yokes? Out of reverence for God, would we, we be fueled by the otherness and status that we have as the temple of the living God. And out of reverence for God, would we remember that we are connected and a part of God's greatest story. Amen. Um, uh, just for the groups um, who wish to uh, continue to respond, maybe, to the sermon and to discuss further, I've got, some couple of, I've got a couple of questions for you on the screen. Um, I'll just read them out for us. Uh, the first question is, what yoke do I have? 
with the unbelieving world that God desires that I break? Uh, What is one step I can take this week to begin to do that? Uh, The second question is, discuss what motivates you to remain rightly yoked. Um, How does it compare to what Paul encourages the Corinthians to look to do? God bless, uh, and have a wonderful rest of the gathering. See you next time.